It is the word of the Lord. It is a stern word of the Lord. <laughs> we read here in, uh, in, in uh, the first verse, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah and Jeroboam, two years before the earthquake. There's a lot of information here. Um, many of the prophets begin this way because it's important for us to know when they spoke, to whom they spoke, and uh, some of the events maybe surrounding it. Uh, what we get here is, uh, is this guy named Amos. I'm not going to develop him a lot, uh, but Amos is a shepherd. We get this here. He's a shepherd from Tekoa. I'm not going to look that up on a map, but it's basically in a place, and it's a, that's what we got. So, um, the, uh, so he, uh, he's called from Tekoa, which is in Judah, the southern kingdom of, um, what is this, of uh, Uzziah. And then, uh, and then he goes up to prophesy into uh, Israel um, there. So he's a shepherd, though, I think is more important. Uh, God uses this person. He's not um, some, uh, some academic, some elite, some Pharisee, some, some whatever you would have um, that you would maybe normally think would bring a potent message from God. God uses ordinary people, just like you and I, shepherds. Man, a blue-collared worker speaking the words of God to his people. Uh, a potent word. And so he goes up and he speaks in the days of Uzziah and Jeroboam. So what's happening in the days of, of Uzziah and Jeroboam? I think Pastor uh, Dave gave us a very uh, clear uh, example last week about this, but one uh, example maybe I could give you here is that history does matter uh, when we read the Bible. Uh, the words here are not just written here like, oh, some dudes were ruling. There's something going on. What happens in their kingdom? These two kingdoms, these two, um, uh, these two uh, kings ruled at a time where there was uh, stability, political stability. For whatever reason uh, there is, it's not so much important right, right now, but there's political stability. And one of the things that we find oftentimes in political stability, this is historically speaking, is that uh, political stability oftentimes moves a government and its people toward prosperity. And so then we have this time of prosperity, which is the case here for the Israelites. That's Amos is speaking to the Israelites. Uh, and so they have this time of prosperity. Well, what happened with the Israelites in this time of prosperity is kind of the same thing that happens in many civilizations in times of prosperity, is that it moves towards decadence, extravagance, idolatry, and corruption. And so I want to always be mindful that Amos is speaking to the Israelites and we can learn of God as he reveals himself speaking to his people in this time. But it's hard for me. It's really hard for me. I was just asking some people for prayer that I don't go that far because uh, I think that the United States right now is very similar to what Israel was like right then. So I'm, not, I'm going to be really hard. Pray for me that I don't speak against American decadence, but that the word speak to our hearts that we can learn that, that, that the Israelites are just not learning here. The United States is not so different than Judah or Israel in a time of prosperity and stability and decadence and corruption and idolatry. My wife and I were watching a, a documentary. It was, it was on wealth, um, and it was uh, uh, this weekend. Um, and it was, uh, actually, the, the name of it escapes me. Um, the, uh, and it was just horrific to just see what wealth does to people and what it does to their, to, their, to their minds and to their aspirations. And, uh, and one, of the, one of the commentators in it, uh, or like the academics that is, you know, like the smart guy giving the, the, the argument here, he, he, says, um, he says oftentimes 
wealth, it, it goes towards decadence, and then it goes to inevitable fall. And, and, and regardless of maybe where we might think the United States would go in the next few decades, I think Amos is specifically speaking to our hearts, to the hearts of Christians. And that's where I want to make sure that we, we replace this, as we're looking at, at a very political rebuke that we take this into our hearts. I think there are two maybe images that we can have, just kind of as we frame up Amos, the whole thing, um, uh, is uh, one of diet and one of um, military, I guess. Uh, so, so Amos is kind of the tone and the way it's, it's developed and delivered. It goes this way. So there's a diet. So, so um, all right, uh, I have three young girls, uh, six, three, and one and a half. Uh, you guys get the, the, the benefit of that because you get really ridiculous uh, sermon illustrations. Here comes one. Um, so there is someone in our, uh, in our character, a list of characters that we talk about oftentimes. Uh, she is very emblematic of American decadence. Her name is Pinkalicious. Uh, any, any, anyone nods from, okay, Pinkalicious, here we go. Okay, so Pinkalicious is awful. Um, I just had to look for my kids. I had to make sure my kids weren't there, so hopefully they're not. Um, so, she, like, she, she has these stories of things happen, and she's this, like, princess, and everything's pink, and we love it. And that's great. That's fine. A dad loves that with his daughters. It's just a neat thing. Um, but her stories are just these convoluted morals, and I'm like, I have no idea what the actual moral of the story is. So, one of them, here it comes, is, um, is, is pink cupcakes. There's a story about pink cupcakes um, and they make these pink cupcakes, and she loves them because they're cupcakes, because you love sugar, because if you love pink, you love sugar. I don't get it. Um, it's horrible to read these books with me. Um, and so then she has these cupcakes. She wants to eat them. She's eating them, blah, blah, blah. She eats them, and then she's like, oh, my tummy doesn't hurt. So her parents very passive-aggressively say, maybe we shouldn't eat only sugar. And it's like, no, remove the sugar. Uh, and, uh, and so she eats more, and they're like, don't do that. And so then at night, she sneaks one. She turns pink. Uh, this is a problem. And they say, we told you this is going to happen. And then she sneaks another one. She turns red because that's dark pink. Um, the, uh, the, uh, and so so, so the, she doesn't care at all what her parents are saying. But now we got a problem. It's in our face. It's, it's on our face. Our face is red. Uh, and, and so she's like, okay, what do we do? Something has to change. Now I'm convicted. This is real. We didn't learn it in theory. Now we have to figure, resolve this. And so she goes to the doctor. This is good. She goes to the doctor, and the doctor says, eat your greens. Duh. And so she does. She doesn't turn green. She turns back to her normal color. She's healthy again. Uh, isn't that great? Um, I don't know what the moral of the story is on that one. Um, uh, there's so many. Please help me. If I'm just too hard on Pinkalicious, please tell me that. I'm not this way with the girls. Um, but, okay, let's keep moving. Um, so, so Israel is Pinkalicious. They, they're, they're, they're eating on these subtle treats. They're sneaking the snacks of wickedness. They're, they're softening their sin. They're not making it a big deal. And, and maybe, maybe a guy comes along here or there, or, 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 or a Levite says, hey, maybe, you know, holiness, this isn't a thing. We're going to hear about these Nazarites who give a great example of holiness. And then the Israelites are all like, ah, let's fudge it this way a bit. Maybe we can drink a little bit here or there as a Nazarite who's not supposed to. Uh, they, 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 they snitch it, and all of a sudden, what happens to Israel right now? Amos says, I'm the doctor. This has become you. Your wickedness has become you. You are it now. This is, the judgment is here. So, but it's not over. You can be healthy. You can go back the right way. You can get off of these things and get on to what's right again 
there's still a chance. I think Amos is sometimes like a military expression, boot camp. I've been talking with uh, uh, Shane Hasbrook, uh, who's, who's part of our, our campus uh, family here, and we've been talking a little bit about military stuff. I'm really inept with, with military stuff, ignorant about just the terms and the hierarchies and all of that. And it's been really enlightening. The book of Amos is very much a military book. The Lord God of hosts is a military term. I'm commanding these things. We're about to see his, his battle map laid out for us here in these chapters. It is very much boot camp. And he was explaining to me this way, and it kind of clicked. The boot camp isn't really for the physical conditioning, to make sure that you're like physically okay to be in the military. It's rather a, a, a mental thing. It's, it's an alignment. It's a unity that's made from an alignment to a certain way of commands, of orders, of hierarchy, of authority. Sometimes we have, now mixing the metaphors, sometimes we have uh, kind of like a diet boot camp. And I think that's a really good way to talk about Amos, is that he's telling us we need to have a steady diet. But more than a steady diet, more than losing the weight, more than turning back to normal color, more than whatever it would be, we need to extend that time. So for several minutes today, for several weeks, we're going to go through Amos, and then we're going to continue to plow through the Bible as we do, because it gets us into that unity that we need so that we desire and we're aligned to the desire of what is good for us. Thus says the word of the Lord. That's, that's what he's going to say. That's what we need. So the proper corrective to their waywardness is the way, Christ, and it's in his word. And so that's what Amos is doing for us. Now, I went with boot camp, which is kind of fun, and pinkalicious, which is awful and fun. It's going to get a lot darker <laughs> from here on out. <laughs> so so um, we're going to go through this because, because this, this military director is, is a, a commanding um, a unity. But it's even more than that. He's the king of the jungle. He's the king of everything. He is the lion who roars. Amos speaks and develops this idea that the lion is roaring, and this lion is out for his prey, and this prey is the wayward people. So, my encouragement for you throughout this series, especially for today, is that we humble ourselves in the corrective warning of the Lord. Humble yourself in the corrective warning of the Lord. He's going to give a warning here today, and what should come from us is this humility, that our strength is not of ourselves, that our prosperity is not of ourselves, but it is from the Lord, and is on His terms, and all are subject to His justice, and His decrees, and His judgment. And there is hope in Christ. Humble ourselves in the corrective warning of the Lord. All right, so we are in the first verse. Uh, we've, we've covered this. We're going to move on here to the next few verses, and I'm going to take these in a massive swath here. Uh, this is, uh, we, we get this repetition here. Verse 3 and 4, I'm going to give an example, and that'll help us speed through the rest of them. So if you look at, at verse 3 and 4, it says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. That's kind of weird language, um, so we've got to think about that. Because they have threshed Gilead with the threshing sledges of iron, so I will send fire upon the house of Hazel, and it shall devour the stronghold of Ben-Hadad. That sounds like I'm reading Old Testament right now. I think that's like the caricature of Old Testament when you read it. Um, so, 
Let me break it down, and I'm going to break it down into a structure so that you can study it more, uh, more, more, more robustly. Okay, if you're looking there, there are three words to look for. For three transgressions. Say the word for. This is the format of, of, of God giving an oracle of judgment. For, I'm calling you to the stand. For three transgressions of Damascus. So he's calling them to stand, and for four. So for three transgressions and for four. That's going to be repeated eight times in, in the next couple of chapters. What does this mean? Three is plural in, 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 in Hebrew. So like the three means the plural. And then you take it to four. Okay, any, any Spinal Tap fans out there? Uh, we're going to crank it to 11. It's not actually existent, but we're going to go all the way beyond. Okay, so your sin, your transgressions are three-dimensional no, wait, they're four-dimensional. What just happened there? That's what he's doing. We're taking it to the next level. It's not just that you have transgressions. You don't even know how deep your depravity is. That's what he's saying. And he's going to say that over and over. So, Damascus, here you go. You're up for these transgressions. Because is the next word you look for. Because, here's your reason. Here is the indictment. Here is why you are guilty. And then he says, so, and here's your punishment. For, because, so, and he's going to keep doing this. For, because, so, for, because, so, and it's always going to end with, and the justice of God is upon you. The judgment of God to you. Here we go. We can watch this map here. For, three transgressions of Damascus. It's very tiny wording. There's a red box up in the corner there. That is Damascus. It's in this, uh, you see this, uh, this, this map here of the time of Amos, where things are at. Um, it's up there in that kind of disputed area. Is it Syria's? Is it Israel's? Blah, blah, blah. There's a history there. Not necessary for right now. Damascus is right there. He says, you, because you have threshed Gilead with the threshing sledges of iron. I'll roughly translate that uh, for us. Because you've committed a great injustice. So, here's the punishment, I will send fire upon you, blah, 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 blah. I will break the gate bar of Damascus. I'm going to break down your stronghold. Your military stronghold will not stand to my might. So, then we move on. In verse 6, for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. We're flying all the way across the map here. Because you have carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up, because you have created a great injustice, so I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod. There we go, that's circled. And Ashkelon. Your strongholds will not stand the mighty roar of the lion. My justice upon your injustice, says the Lord. So then he keeps going, for three transgressions, verse 9, of Tyre, and for four I will not revoke punishment, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom. They did not remember the covenant of brotherhood, because they have acted in great injustice. I will send fire upon the wall of Tyre and devour its strongholds. My justice upon your injustice says the Lord. Verse 11, for three transgressions of Edom. This is the fourth uh, oracle here of Edom. Now we're across the map here. Do you see how this is going? I don't know if you've been tracking. We went up Syria in one corner. Now we draw across the map. Uh, Philistia. Now we're up in Tyre, and now we're going all the way back down. There, there's a reason. We didn't just go around, around in a circle. Boom, boom. We're narrowing this down. We're finding our guy. We're lining up our sights. Shh, we're down in Edom. 
because he pursued his brother with a sword and cast off all pity, because he had great injustice. So I will send a fire upon Taman, it is highlighted there, and devour the stronghold of Bozrah. My justice upon your injustice. Now we're getting this rhythm here. I mean, we should be getting the rhythm. Four, we're going to keep going though. Uh, Verse 13, four, the transgressions of the Ammonites who live in Ammon, this town that is circled here, because they have ripped open pregnant women in in Gilead that they might enlarge their, their border because they have made sure that that people can't multiply and we will and we will take over a really graphic injustice. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah and devour its strongholds. My justice upon your injustice, says the Lord. For three transgressions of Moab, we're, we're almost done here. We're, we're, I mean, we were just, yeah, we're running out of, running out of places. Um, he burned lim- to limestone the bones of the king of Edom. Now, Edom was just cursed, and now they, because he dealt with Edom wrongly and unjustly, he also is cursed. It's not just dealing with the wicked, it's dealing with them rightly. And now, what does he say? So I will send fire upon Moab and devour the strongholds of Kiriath. They're gone too. And here is where we turn. Those are all nations that have, create, that have, have done a great injustice of God. So a big significant thing that we get here is God cares a lot about justice and treating people rightly. All of these people, all of these nations are not doing that even when they are not, or even when they are acting against people that God is condemning here, they're not doing it rightly. God demands that we call out justice or injustice justly, not just the way that we want to. We teach our kids this. Don't just hit them back when they hit you. We have to deal with this rightly. So somehow we just kind of change that when we become adults. But then we make this turn here because we're, we're, we're focusing on injustice and now he's going to turn. What do we have left here? We have Judah and Israel. I think that's it. For three transgressions of Judah. Here we go. Now God is calling out his people. And for four, I will not revoke punishment because they have rejected the law. They've not kept his statutes, but, they, but their lies have led them astray. That's not, that's not justice. That's insubordination is what it is. That's idolatry. He makes this switch here when he turns to his people. Everybody else, my rules of justice apply to them. They're being judged for it. But you, my people, are a different people. Your idolatry is what you're getting called out for. So I will send up the fire, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. No military might will survive. You're all going down. And it's crazy that he says Jerusalem is going down because we read in verse 2 of this chapter, or of chapter 1, the Lord is roaring from Jerusalem. He's standing there saying, and this is all going down too because you people are worshiping the wrong God. So the battle plans have been laid out. The divine sniper is sniping and his crosshairs are lined up on Israel. I made one more slide just to make it really clear. There you go. Uh, It's Israel. That's all that's left on this map that has people living in it. It's it's Israel. God deals specifically with his people. This is one of the themes. It's a very big theme uh, uh, that runs through the whole Bible. Is God's justice is on everyone. Everyone. 
His rules apply to everyone. They will be judged accordingly. That's a truth that's then. That's also a principle that comes to today as well. But when we get to Israel, there's this idea of covenant relationship. God is in covenant with his people. He makes a, a pledge with them, and they make a pledge with him that, that they, will, he, they will worship him rightly and live accordingly, and that he will be their God and protect them. And he says, we, we, we entered this, and the world knows me through you. The, the way you live, it shows who I am to the world and you've broken that, so I will deal specifically with you. He does that with us as Christians. There, there are some things that, tra- that change there, but in the new covenant, we, we have that, and he deals with us there. I think sometimes we think, oh, if I just become a Christian, I, I say, I'm, I'm a sinner, God, save me, which, which is good, do that. Um, and then we just kind of think, okay, I'm good. That happened with Israel, and now they're at a different spot. Maybe the Christian example would be and we're just living life as Christians saying, ah, let's ease off the sin thing, let's whatever. Um, that's where they are, that's where we are, and so these words can speak into us. One of the Bible, Bible study tips I would give you here is that when you read the Old Testament, there's so many names, and there are so many, there's so many places. Um, and if we just read, if I just, the reason why I didn't read all of this for you is because it's kind of boring to read. It's really interesting uh, once you get into it, but if you just read it, it's so much information. And I think sometimes we can just turn off our brain and say, that's just too much. So here's the tip. Geography matters a lot to God. Place and where things happen and what's going on matter a whole lot to God. Why did I put so much time into making those slides for you? Because it shows that God really cares about his people and his justice is on everything and we get that when when we're looking into the geography. So I would suggest that when you come across those uh, place names, you just look it up. I think now Google will let you do that. I even cringe saying that. There are other better places to go than just that. Uh, Bible, BibleGateway.com, uh, BlueLetterBible.com. Those are great places. ESV, uh, the English Standard Version, has a study Bible. It's phenomenal. That's where that picture came out of. Uh, it's, it's, it's wonderful. If you don't have one of those, I have one here, and I can get it to you. And just, We need these things to, uh, to help us because it is kind of strange. I don't know who half these people are that he names until I look into it, and they mean something. So it's just a big pastor urge. Get into that. It means something. It speaks to us. What is the geography saying here? The big theological point is that God holds all people and all nations and all cultures accountable to his moral standards. They're all being judged, whether it's injustice or idolatry. That's it. And now we move here because we've got this last one, and this is the potent one. Because everybody else gets, you know, two or three verses of judgment, which I guess for them is really great because it's not a, not a whole lot. But then we turn to Israel here. This is verse 6 of chapter 2. And we're going to go for like 10 verses. And you're just going to go over and over and over and over. And that's just the preface because then we get like six more chapters and he's just really going to lay it out. What is going on? It's because Israel did something even more, uh, more intense, more offensive to God, is that, it t- is that they've taken this injustice and this idolatry, and they've mashed it together into their culture. While some are doing injustice and some are doing idolatry, Israel, like the American church of now, just throws it all together, and it's very offensive. Uh, I, I first heard this quote um, that, that, that what we can put up on the, on the screen here. 
um, from a pastor, Trevor uh, Nashley, in, in, uh, of Coram Deo in Omaha. Um, oh, it's, just, it's just a great one. It says, justice is primarily a worship issue. If you go away with anything today, go away with that. Justice is primarily a worship issue. I'll read the rest of, of his quote as he develops this. When you worship something less than God, you start to treat people as something less than human. We never wrong our neighbor inward or outwardly until we have first committed idolatry inwardly. Justice is primarily a worship issue. The problem with Israel, and I might suggest, maybe just invite you to consider, maybe the problem with you is that you're treating people wrongly or maybe the, 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 the symptoms of how you treat people wrongly is actually more indicative of what you believe of God. If I don't believe God is the ultimate authority, I'm going to scream the rules at my kids. Justice is primarily a worship issue. And so he's going to go over the Israelites and explain to them this, and especially here in the next verses. So now we're ready to receive the oracle of judgment for Israel. It says, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. It says, the righteous and the needy are sold as objects. They're no longer people. That's injustice. I'm summarizing this a bit. If not sold, verse 7, they trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. So they actively trample the head of the poor down, and then they passively turn away the side of the afflictive. We all just confess this in what we've done and what we've left undone. This is our sin. We're here. We do this and things like it every day. Uh, then he goes into good night, the rest of uh, <laughs> uh, verse 7, uh, about the man and the father and the girl. And they, their sexual conduct, conduct is, is messed up. Like It is, it is, it is offensive. There's something about this idea of, 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 though, of, of, of their sexual conduct, especially within the temple, that maybe it's, it's this manipulation of God. Maybe it's just their lewdness. And maybe whatever it is. But I, I think some of this, as I read this, it's, it's hard for me in verse 7 not to read verse 7 and think that that's a pretty good, accurate, poetic description of pornography in America today. I feel like this is just a thing that, that like Christians statistically love pornography. I feel like this is one of those connections like, what, what are we doing, people? Come on, Israel. And he says, so what's the end of this? So that my holy name is profaned. You act this way like you're God and you can do whatever you want. There are no rules. And my name is profaned because people are supposed to know who I am by the way you act. And you're not doing that. And you haven't been doing that. So, Amos, and here is the word. And so he calls him to the stand, and he says, this is what it is. Here's his reason why this is so offensive. Verse 8, they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments and take, taken in pledge, which means they buy it on credit. And in the house of their God, of their God, they drink. And it's not drink that they got themselves, but it's drink from fine wine that they got from someone else. And so they're taking other people's resources, even though they have wealth, and they're amassing more for themselves so that they can worship more or less themselves. You're treating people wrongly, God says. And he says, and you're treating people wrongly because you're treating God wrongly. 
I'm going to speed ahead. He then lists things that he alone has done. He says, here's the corrective. You don't get it. This is what is reality. You're acting in a way that is so decadent and and, and fantasy and and lives of of, of credit and fame are so superimposed and they're not real and they don't last. Let's get back to reality here. Here's reality. Verse 9. I, not you, destroyed the Amorites. You did not get where you're living because of you. I put you there. Verse 10, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And right there, that's that covenant part. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Huge theme, Exodus motif. It's one of the biggest things that is repeated throughout Scripture. It is, I saved you from slavery. And we get this, and it's translated a little bit more into the New Testament. I saved you from slavery in sin. I'm the one who saved you. And then he goes on at the end of verse 10, and I led you in the wilderness. And not only was I that moment, that awesome moment of salvation in your life, I also am with you every day, feeding you the bread of life, guiding you through the fire pillar. I am giving you these things that we then hear in the New Testament, the bread of life, the fire, the spirit. There's guidance here. I saved you and guided you. I am the one doing all of these. Why do you think you're the ones doing it? Verse 11, I raised up prophetic messengers to reveal myself to you. So I didn't just do it and then stand back. I interacted. I gave you messages to reveal myself. And then he says, I gave you Nazarites. Nazarites are set aside to be a holy example for the Israelites. They are the model people and the examples of how to live. That's what they're supposed to do. And maybe in their honor-shame culture, there's just shame in a little bit <laughs> to, 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 to get them to act the way they need to because some of us don't just learn in theory like Pinkalicious. Uh, we need to see examples of how to live. The Nazarites are there, and they have specific commands to do that. But uh, I sent my prophetic messengers to reveal myself in word, and I sent my, my examples of how you may live holy lives so that the world may know who you are, and you may be a blessing to the nations, but you're not that because, verse 12, you told them to disregard my commands. Just go ahead. It's okay to drink in the temple where it was for some. It's not for the Nazarites. And then you told the prophets to keep silent my messages. You told the preachers not to preach those controversial things that are just from the text. I mean, a few moments ago, back in verse 7, I felt like I was there in that controversy. Uh, it's, what do we do when, when we only are, are fed the pink cupcakes of, of, of love and forgiveness and, 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 and joy and, 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 and we're not given the full steady diet that we need? Uh, we, we slowly and succulently move into this spot. Ugh. This is not a good spot to be. The lion roars justice on their wickedness. While the words of Amos are primarily intended for Israel to be, uh, to be fulfilled eventually, uh, the, the Assyrians come in and take over, there are principles we can observe today as we wait for the ultimate fulfillment of the words of Amos in Christ. Here are a couple. Justice is primarily a worship issue. We've talked about this a bit, but I think this is a big deal in Amos. There is something inherently connected between the way we relate to God and the way we relate to people who are made in the image of God. If we have a wrong God, then the way we think of people is going to be messed up. 
And then the way we treat them may seem right, but it's not because it doesn't align with reality and God's intent for it. I think this is an alarmingly similar description of the church today. Injustice, living on credit, worship as manipulation of God or complete and sexual disregard, regarding the laws of God or disregarding the laws of God, but feeling okay about it because they're a bit legalistic and, let's be honest, somewhat prudish. Silencing his full and clear message to the world, which also includes commands, judgment, and punishment. I think if we're going to be a people who have a healthy diet, if we're going to be people who are united to something that is good, as God intended, we need to hunker down and get the rhythms and the practices of what God wants for us. We need a steady diet of the word. And so then we get to verse, the last few verses here. Uh, so rather than saying so, it amplifies it and says, behold, verse 13, behold, so here's what I'm going to do. I will press you down so that you know I am your strength and your life. So that you know that I am your strength and your life. He says, flight shall perish from the swift. Strong shall not retain his strength. The mighty shall not save his life. My judgment comes, you can't save your life. Something beyond you must save you. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift shall not save himself. He who rides shall not save his life. He who is stout of heart, who has got a fat heart, is just going to sit there among the mighty. He's not going to be so fat anymore. He's going to flee away real fast, naked in that day. Neither the strong, the swift, or the mighty will be able to save themselves from divine discipline or judgment. Verse 15 says that he shall not stand, shall not save themselves, but in the presence of a living, sovereign, holy God, they're going to be stripped bare. This is good for us to hear. It is not fun, but it is good for us to hear. This is one of the things we must learn from Amos. This is the other half of the steady diet. And so it moves us to this idea that we must humble ourselves in the sovereign correction of the Lord. So here, here maybe are a couple things, and we'll move to where Christ comes in to all of this, because he's here. Humble yourselves in the corrective warning of the Lord. One thing we learn in Amos is that the Lord is a totally sovereign God. He has a plan. He sends prophets to declare that plan. He has a battle map. He knows how it all works, and he just commands it. Here's what's going to happen, and it's going to happen. I'm not predicting I'm just telling you, here's what's going to happen, because I already know the fourth dimension. Another thing we learn is that the Lord is a covenantal God. He deeply desires relationships specifically with his people, and he interacts with it in a special way. If you are a Christian, you can take joy in that God interacts with you differently. He wants what's good for you. He strives what's good for you. We'll get into this a lot more next week in the discipline of the Lord. Hebrews 12 says, Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when, he re when reproved by him. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. This is what Amos is talking about. He disciplines the one he loves. Another point that we can learn about Amos is that the Lord is a God of the heart. Amos is going to talk a lot about, and he already has, about many surface-level items, but he's only going to talk about them on the way to the heart. You do these things in the temple because your heart's nasty. 
You do these things with the people around you and your neighbors and the poor because you got bad worship. And he's always going to hit at our hearts. And so we do well, and I invite you to think through these things. Read through this. If you're not coming back because this is really offensive, that's, I guess, okay. You could still read this this week and ask yourself, do I do these things with that kind of heart? It's deeply convicting. It rips me apart when I read this. Like, I am awful. And that's kind of the point. The Lord, though, though he is sovereign, covenantal, and a God of the heart, is also a God who saves. We're going to look at the end of the book here because it it, it takes a turn that many of the prophets do. They take this wonderful turn at the end. Uh, Amos 9.10 says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom. So he's raining down his judgment. And then it says, Except I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. When God has discipline upon you, when God has conviction in your life, he is not going to destroy you. That's not the point. It is to make you better. It is to point you to someone who can take care of it, to Christ. And it is to rebuild you. The next verse, Amos 9, 11 says, And I will raise up a booth of David that is fallen and rebuild it in the days of old. Our humility is confidently grounded in Christ, who is this booth of David. You see, we have a better prophet than what he, than God sent his, sent his prophet, than the prophets that God sent to the Israelites, because we have a better message, and that is the word. Jesus is the prophet with the message, and his message is, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." And so he moves us toward right worship of himself, and a right way of living through right justice and interaction with people. He's a better example than the Nazarites because he is, in fact, the way. He's not the example. He is, in fact, the way of living. So knowing that justice is upon all, and knowing that forgiveness is available to those who through faith alone in Christ alone have repented of their sin, If that's us, then we can strive for holiness confidently and freely. We can make the the, the point of our day more holiness because we know that even if we slip, it is forgiven. It's not that even if we're wicked as much as we want to be, we're forgiven. It's we can pursue holiness confidently knowing that if we miss it, we're forgiven. We can joyfully establish rhythms, practices, and habits of maturity unlike the decadent Israelites. And we can confidently humble ourselves in the corrective warning of the Lord. So my, my, uh, my, my, my pastoral prayer uh, as I've been prepping for this has been that we would be people, that each one of us would see that our own sin is serious. And that unlike maybe Pinkalicious, we wouldn't just take it off of advice. We wouldn't take it off of a warning here or there. But rather, we would know rightly that God is real and it's very serious what we believe of him and how we act and that we act in line with who he is. We love in the way God loves. We forgive in the way God forgives. We tell truth in the way that God tells truth. We stay committed in the way that God stays committed. We do all of these things because the world is looking at us and trying to figure out who God is. 
and God will be made known, and his justice will be on us if we don't do it rightly. But we can confidently go humbly in our daily lives, knowing that Christ is that example, is that word, is that point, and that Amos will move us there to see how glorious it is when we live in the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray.